0: Okay, everybody, by now we're pretty much aware that it's Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month, and it's also Better Speech and Hearing Month, but it is also Asian Pacific Islander Awareness Month. And did you know ASHA has a caucus to support the 3% of our colleagues that identify as an Asian Pacific Islander? And 3%. That boggles my mind because we serve a population that is so much more diverse than that. So when I found out that we have a caucus to support our colleagues and to support ourselves that are monolingual SLPs serving a diverse population, well, I recruited them and begged them to come on. But I also have to give a very heartfelt gratitude to two women in this caucus that are actually not in today's interview, but have mentored me and brought me so much joy and laughter over the last actual couple years of my life. So, first, I want to thank Dr. Grace Howe, who is the chair of North Carolina Central University, for her mentorship for her sponsorship for always being a ray of sunshine and I will treasure our moments together in Basla I had a blast and y'all she is a phenomenal lecturer and one of her passion projects is transgender voice therapy and so I highly recommend if you can ever take a course by her Soak it up, baby. Also, I have to give a heartfelt thank you to Dr. Rebecca Wada, who is a speech-language pathologist and assistant professor at Francis Marion University, and she is the first person ever appointed in the new role for vice president for diversity, equity, inclusivity, and accessibility with Skisha, South Carolina Speech Hearing Association. So, Becca, I am... So proud of the work that you're doing and the advocacy that you live and breathe. Also, the boys want to know, when are you coming to play with that sweet baby? <laughs> so. Ladies, thank you for being you. Y'all, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Honestly, we geeked out with the guest and we spent another hour after the recording just talking about therapy. So uh, they'll be back this fall to talk more about therapy because they're both AAC specialists working with neuro- neurodivergent populations. So uh, there it is. Happy day, y'all. Happy day. Happy day.
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com.
0: All right, everybody. We all know like the backstory of May being better speech and hearing month. But May, in and of itself, represents so much more than that. May also has Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month, but It is also, correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, the Asian American History Month. Is that correct? Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. There it is. Okay. See, I I am crushing the podcasting today, (laughs) y'all. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus. And here's the why. Because most of us that are working professionals, I believe it is 92% predominantly Caucasian female speech-language pathologist, and that is not reflective of the patients that we have been called to serve. Also, y'all, let's just admit it, we don't know what we don't know, and most of us don't even realize that ASHA has a plethora of caucuses. And those caucuses raise awareness about issues that are near and dear to their members' hearts, right? And a lot of advocacy and education. So the backstory on this one is that last year at ASHA, I was volunteering at the speech therapy, pd.com booth, and I sat across from, or stood across from the ASHA caucus section. And there was like all of these different caucuses and the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus. Did I say this right now? Asian Pacific Islander <laughs> Caucus? Yeah. They were diagonally across from me next to the LGBTQIA plus and next to the disability caucus. I was like, how do we not know that these caucuses exist? So I begged, borrow, pleaded, sent off a couple emails and was like, can I please shine your light and make us better? And then proceeded to tell all my students about it because my graduate students need to know this. And these lovely ladies have agreed to come on, and I'm very thrilled about that. So without further ado, I get to highlight our guest. So the first guest is Archie Soliman. Did you do it right? Sulaiman. 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 Oh, so close. And y'all, I practice. I'm so sorry. Archie Sulaiman. She is the co-president of the Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus. She's also the manager of school speech language services and has been a SLP at a therapeutic day school in the Chicago area. And her focus area is on AAC, which love AAC. That is like a passion project of mine. We don't need to start with PECs, everybody. If you have a PECs board, we can go to current evidence-based practice. And I won't go any farther down that rabbit hole because life. Okay. And then our next guest is Nadia Ito. Did I do it right, Nadia? Nadia Ito? Yes. yes. Beautiful. And she's a speech-language pathologist and clinical supervisor in LA. And see, she's a vice president and current advisory board member for the Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus and past, past, vice president. past, vice president. past vice president. Past vice president. Yes, yes, yes. yes. This would help if I, I have my readers right here. I should have put them on. And she also focuses on AAC, working with autistic and neurodiverse population, and is a member of SIG 14, which is the multicultural special interest group if that is correct. Basically, y'all, their CV reads like incredibly empowered badass women that they are, and I get to interview them. So yay. Hi. Who wants to go first? How did you become a speech-language pathologist? Tell us
2: all of the things. Well, I'll go first because I won't be able to beat Nadia's story, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was a pre-dental major in college, and then I decided I didn't want to be a dentist anymore because I wanted people to like me, and people usually don't like to go to the dentist. (laughs) So then I looked through the course catalog to see um, what other major I can look at that will still take all my credits so that I can graduate on time. And then I took an intro class to speech, and I think it was Communication Sciences and Disorders, and I loved it. And so here I am. Okay, wait, what school did you go to? Where'd you go for undergrad and grad school? I went to Michigan State for my undergrad and then Northwestern for grad school. And that's Northwestern was what brought me to the Chicagoland area.
0: Nice, nice. I've honestly never heard it called Chicagoland area. I've heard it called Chicago and I know there's deep dish pizza and you need a fork. And if you break those rules, then like you are not participating in supporting the greater Chicago area.
2: I have never seen anyone pick up a slice of Chicago deep dish pizza and eat it, but that would be something interesting to see, I was say. <laughs> I tried one time I was out there lecturing. I was like, how do you, this is not,
0: and everybody, they're like, you're not from around here. I was like, no, no, ma'am, I am not. Okay. So then can I ask, what is your personal
2: cultural background and how did you get into API? Right, so I kind of grew up in both Indonesia and in the States, just kind of went back and forth. So I'm Indonesian and I got into the caucus back in 2019, like late 2019. I'm like, oh, there's API caucus. This is pretty cool. So I joined, but I kind of put it in the back burner. And then in 2020, when the whole world kind of shut down, you know, then like my day-to-day changed a little bit a lot of it with like having having to do everything, telepractice and figuring life out uh, from home. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And then the API caucus created a group called the Anti-Racism Learning Community so that we can learn how to all be anti-racists. And so that's how I got even more into the API caucus. And then at the end of that year, when some um, board positions opened up, I... Ran and I got the position. So that's how I got really involved with the caucus.
0: I love that. But see, that's folks, you've heard me say it on the podcast in the past. If with one breath you recognize a problem, a point of failure in society, within our profession, don't stop with that one breath. Don't just voice your concern or complain about it. It is what you do with that second breath that's how we drive change. That's how we make the world better. And you may not think that you can, but trust me, reach out to a caucus that represents you and what's near to your heart. Reach out to your state association, volunteer and tithe your time, because there is little ways that all of these associations and caucuses, they can just plug you in. Hey, and you don't even know it exists until you reach out. So Everybody take a big, deep breath for that second one and then hold tight. <laughs> okay, Nadia, yay. Tell us about you because I heard good things about the story beforehand. So now I really want to know.
3: <laughs> well, I'm just going to quickly mention about my background first. I'm half Japanese and half Sri Lanka and my mom is Japanese. And um, my brother and I grew up in Japan until I was about 14 and my family moved to Sri Lanka where I lived about five and a half years. But when I was a senior in high school, I used to typically take, you know, take a taxi home, but I just happened to, you know, find a bus, you know, an empty bus, you know, stop in front of me. And, you know, if you imagine, like, you know, if you think about, you know, buses in Sri Lanka or India, you see a lot of people, you know, you know, hanging from the bus or, you know, you may imagine things like that. I usually never took a bus, but I happened to, you know, hop on a bus. It was an empty bus. And there was this Caucasian lady sitting in a bus. Now, if you know anything about Sri Lanka at that time, that's, well, a long, long time ago, but you wouldn't see a foreigner in a bus unless you're my mother. My mother would get on the bus and go anywhere. But, you know, I happened to sit next to her and I asked her, you know, what are you doing in a bus in Sri Lanka? And she said, well, I'm a speech therapist from the UK. And I was like, oh, what is that? You know, I wanted to do medicine. You know, I was a senior in high school, as I said before, and, you know, I was thinking about, you know, a person in medicine, but... You know, she really intrigued me. And she mentioned to me that at that time, I think it was like 1998, there was only one speech pathologist in the whole country of Sri Lanka. And she was there helping develop the program there. That um, Currently, it's a, a bachelor's degree program at uh, one university there. And, you know, she was telling me how rewarding and, you know, fulfilling how work was. And so I went home, you know, went online, looked it up, and the rest is, you know, history. That's how I, you know, I became a speech pathologist.
0: That literally was your sign. My kid brother was born with a cleft of his lip and extended into his right nair. And um, it was a unilateral cleft. But my stepmom got electrocuted when she was pregnant. She was changing out the toggly part of a light switch, you know, the piece that you flip up and down. And he she was seven months pregnant and then something happened and she missed. There was like bad wiring. I don't know the full story. And she got shocked pretty bad. And um, so he was born with dysarthria, not apraxia, and didn't talk until he was four. And then Ms. Zavransky, Caitlin was her daughter. Her and I were ballerinas together. I have no rhythm. I was the worst ballerina ever. Um, broke my big toe three times doing ballet because I am that not graceful. But God Almighty, I had a blast, right? But Ms. Zavransky was his um, speech therapist. And it was so cool as like 13, 14-year-old girl to see, you know, Efi. His name's Ethan, but he always said Efi because he couldn't say Ethan. <laughs> so like Effie learned to talk. And it was just amazing. And so that was it. And then I took a dysphagia class and was like, that's cool. So it stuck. Yes. Okay. Oh, I love this. Okay. We have so many questions to cover and I, my ADHD is just like already flying because I have a lot of personal questions, but Archie, let's start, let's start with you. You are currently the AP, on the API caucus board and Nadia, you were previously on the board. So take us from the beginning. Give us the
2: story of this caucus and how it came to be. Well, the caucus was founded by um, Dr. Lily Ching in 1985. So we've been around for actually quite a while. 38 years because I just turned 40. (laughs) So I know that. (laughs) Yes, so... So, yeah, so we've been around for quite a little bit. And then so actually we're our long name is the Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus. But people usually just know us as the API Caucus. And about like 6,300 SLPs and audiologists identify as coming from an API background. And then this also encompasses East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and then also the Pacific Islands. And that also includes like Native Hawaiians. Um, So compare the 6,300 SLPs and audiologists from this background to the about 223,000 members of ASHA, that just kind of puts us at 3% of the whole ASHA constituency who come from this background.
0: That is not enough representation. We have to.
2: Yes. Yeah. So- it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a big, it's a little, it's a little gap. It's a big gap. Uh, it's in, And in
0: my hat as I can't announce it yet, but I have a new position I'm starting in July one and it immediately makes me think, okay, so how can we make this better? So I, I'll focus back again, but yes, yes. Okay. And w- this was a question that I had when we started the different languages that were represented because this is an incredibly diverse population that you're And also I go into how many different
2: faiths does that represent too, right? That's a lot. So it's a lot. So right now within this group, we speak at least 48 languages, but I'm sure that there are also other dialects too that people speak. Just because like in Indonesia, the the major languages, for example, Basa Indonesia or Indonesian, but there's also Japanese and Sundanese and all the other they call them dialects, but they're like completely different languages. So if you speak some of those languages, then you have even more languages. And then Nadia, you speak multiple languages too.
3: Yes. Well, my first language is Japanese and I do speak a dialect of the Tamil, which is, a, I speak a Sri Lankan dialect and, and I understand some other languages here and there. So when you'll have a meeting, what is the
0: predominant
2: language that's spoken in the meeting? I mean, we, most of our members, we just speak English for our, for all of our meetings. Mm-hmm. Because, and that's the thing, and we'll talk about this later on too, is that we invite anyone and everyone to come and join our caucus meetings. And we do meet like virtually every so often. And then we also always have a meeting at Asha.
0: Nice. Is it like a pre con meeting, like a pre convention meeting or?
3: Actually, the meeting is on Thursdays where we meet in a way where the ASHA, you know, has the um, multicultural collective concerns, MC squared. So like the, our meetings take place right before that. It's our annual meeting. There's so many meetings that occur
0: at ASHA that it's hard when you're like, when you serve in a bunch of, you're like, oh, I gotta go. Can't catch class right now. I'll see you later. And then you're just like bolting down the hallway, like trying to make it to the next one. Yes. Yes. Do you all have numbers on how many different faiths are represented within the caucus?
3: We haven't really talked about faiths, but I think if there's a variety. There's a lot, I would say.
2: Yeah, I would say that there's so a yeah. lot. That's something
0: that I always find very intriguing just because, I mean, I'm a woman of faith. I grew up Southern Baptist, but the whole, our particular Denomination women were supposed to be submissive and not work and not be employed. And I don't do well with that philosophy for a lot of reasons. So we changed to a Methodist church. And then when my husband and I got married, we joined a Lutheran church, right? And uh, they have an Oktoberfest where they drink beer in public. And that just jives with my life choices. (laughs) So, like, I'm joking, but like, it works for our personal beliefs. But wearing that hat, As faith is a part of who I am, when I go into other homes and I know our traditions and parts of our culture around mealtime and breaking bread. And when I treat PFD, that's a very intimate thing. So when I go in, I always try to seek to understand what are your faith background and how do you break bread with your people, right? And so that we can embed that within our treatments. Um, Because I had a family that was from India years ago where. They wanted the little one to drink from a cup, but the cup couldn't touch his lip. And I had never heard of that part of their culture before. And that was a very, this is very difficult because we also had some hemiparesis and some things. So it was a good OTPT work, like workaround. But I just, I always kind of wonder about that. But yes. Okay.
2: So tell me more about API. So I think ASHA just recognizes API Caucus as just one group, but you know, essentially, we're people from a lot of different areas. I mean, Asia, if you think about it, it's a very large continent and there's like the mainland Asia. And then we also have so like thousands of little islands, too. And we're just seen as one group. But really, we're a lot of different subgroups kind of. Grouped yeah, and
3: our groups. diversity within the group is not, you know, really recognized at the moment. You know, so that's what we are, you know, we are really working on to, you know, you know, spread awareness and, uh, you know, advocate, you know, for not only for us, you know, professionals, but, uh, you know, of course, you know, for our clients as well, because representation really matters. Yes, ma'am, it does. Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. So then if wearing as a I mean, I am part Cherokee and I'm registered with Padawamic, but I am a Caucasian white female and I have all that comes with it and limited knowledge outside of this face, right? And this lived experience. But when I go to work with individuals that don't have that background, how can we do better? How can we learn. And you were talking about an anti-racist league or component that y'all set up at the beginning.
2: Yeah. So that was one of the things that we do as a caucus is we do have our anti-racism learning community. And we meet, we try to meet like once a month and we discuss like what's happening right now. And what are some ways that we can all learn as a group to become um, anti-racists. And that's, you know, not just like in regards to the Asian population, but we were really focusing on, you know, the murder of George Floyd was what kind of got that ball rolling for the anti-racist learning community. So we just kind of wanted to make sure that we were being anti-racist altogether.
0: Are there webinars? Are there tutorials that like members can access online about that? Or are there materials for,
2: to support and grow non-members knowledge? right now you know that's actually a good point right now we don't have a database where we're posting the meeting notes or anything like that but we've like watched videos together so we've watched videos and then we like discussed what we watched and um what we've learned um like so for example i think one of the ones um that we watched recently was a video on like how sometimes there's also racism within the Asian community. And then that was the first video that we watched. And then the second one was how can, it was a group of people who were basically pushing so that to help teach their community so that they, you know, we can be a part of anti-racist community. So, you know, we watched videos and we learn from the videos, or sometimes we also get articles when 2020, when a lot of people were home, we had a book club, like as part of the ALC or anti racism Learning Community Meeting, where we were reading, I think the Ibram uh, Kendi book, How to Become an Anti-Racist or something like that. I, I can't really, I, I'm not 100% on the title, but we were all like reading that book together and then discussing it and how we can all become an, an, an anti-racist. So there's, you know, it's a pretty interesting group and anyone is able to join and yeah, so our next meeting is actually uh, after this recording next week. So so it'll be after the recording. <laughs> so the recording, it would have happened after the recor- this recording is released, but we will hopefully have another one usually like, at the end of the month. But people can always go to our website where they can see the anti-racism learning community and things like that too.
0: That's awesome. That's a beautiful resource to have because,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we... As a general rule of thumb, watch very limited news in our house just because I have little ones that I'm trying to protect. And a lot of the news is very ugly and I'm not ready for them to be exposed to the amount of hate that's really in the world. And there's a fine line between educating and advocating your children and protecting their mental health. You know, that's. But I was aware that um, last year that there was – successive attack on Asian Americans, especially over in California. And that was, that was something that was discussed deeply within our home because prior to moving to Virginia, our children attended a Mandarin immersion school. So for the last three years, half their day was taught in Chinese and in, in Mandarin. And so this is near and dear to our heart. And it was affiliated with, um, university of South Carolina, like a lot of, so like, a lot of faculty consulted and came in and pushed in. So the fact that y'all do that is just, it's wonderful. Okay, so then Nadia, what are your favorite parts and how the caucus
3: helps members and advocates for the patients that we serve? That's a big question. But I can start by talking about how I became a part of uh, you know the caucus. The first time I joined um, our caucus was when I was a uh, senior in college, I went to my first dasha in Atlanta, Georgia with my friends. And at that time, I was at Missouri State University. That's where I did my undergrad. And I had, you know, I had read an article by Dr. Lily Cheng, who happens to be the founder of the, you know, the caucus. And, but I didn't really know about the caucus until I saw her at, you know, a convention. She was walking in front of me and I recognized her because I had read her article. So I ran after her. <laughs> I introduced <to> myself. <laughs> You know me. You know I was in Missouri. So I didn't really see you know other professors who were you know of the diverse background. And I was really excited because I'm Asian, and you know she's she's a scholar with the Asian background. And I introduced myself, and she took time to talk to me. And you know she asked me you know what my background was, and and she said, oh, you know we have API caucus meeting tonight. Why don't you come? So that's how I started. That's like 21 years ago. Right, I think, and it was a small, like intimate group of, you know, professors and students. And what stood out for me was, she said, because of our backgrounds and differences, we can make a difference in other people's lives, and that was so impactful for me. And so when I applied to grad school, I really wanted to study with her. So I went to San Diego State, and you know, she was a professor there, and you know, she's still my mentor. It's that one to one. Isn't it amazing how that one to
0: one touch, that personal invite, come be a part of this, can like really profoundly change us?
3: So I do remember, you know, we're starting so small. And now, Archie, what's the membership? How many members do we have right now? I want to say, I mean, members. right
2: now on our mailing list, we have over, I think we have over a thousand for our oh. mailing list. And our meetings
3: really used to, to be like eight people, 10 people, you know, when I joined in. So we've grown so much and we still continue to grow.
0: Have you guys had a convention yet? I mean, coming fresh hot off in Bosla, I'm like, How, do y'all have a convention? Because I want to come to an API convention.
2: <laughs> no, no, we don't. We're not have... there yet. We're but not there I... yet. Not quite there yet. But we, but do, we do have so a pretty awesome.
3: amazing social hour, I think bimonthly or so virtually. And um,
0: I'm always down for a good social hour. So that's fantastic. But yes. Yeah. And
2: also, I love how you qualified yet. But that's huge, like having dreams. And And then we, we also have API speaker series. So we don't have an actual, you know, like, convention, but we do host speaker series events. And like last year, I think they were all free. And then we would just take donations if anyone has the funds and would like to support our caucus. But we've like hosted different EPI speaker series. I believe the last one that we did was highlighting the um, voices of Pacific Islander. Yeah, highlighting Pacific Islander voices. So and then if you go to our website, you should be able to find the link to that YouTube recording. Um, obviously, you won't be able to get CUs um, because it's on YouTube, but you should be able to still view the content of the course.
0: Oh, and I love how you have your goals and your mission statements right there front and center. Oh, this is lovely. Okay, folks, if you're listening and not driving, they have an Instagram account, a Facebook page, and hyperlink right on their homepage to their YouTube series as well. So that's all there. And it's A P I S L H org, So that's there, but again, not if you're driving. Okay. So what, what is your, <laughs> I have to remind myself, especially when I'm driving, like, oh, that's really cool. Nope. Focus, Michelle. <laughs> okay. So what are your joy moments? Y'all have been part of a, of it for a period of time. So what initiatives are y'all most proud of seeing happening or what big initiatives are y'all planning in the near future? I'm off script here. Sorry, but I just get excited.
2: (laughs) Okay. So the one that's really coming up soon is the right now would be the API Heritage Month, where right now we're going to be posting, we're, we're going to be posting a lot of different things on social media. We have our members submit different entries. We have like six different themes. And so you should be able to check it out. One of our board members kind of puts, together all of these videos. Ray, he's really great with the social aspect of our caucus and then also putting all of these social media videos together. So you should be able to view some of those on our Instagram as well as our Facebook. So we have that this month because May again is the API Heritage Month. And like I mentioned, we're really proud of our speaker series events that you can view on our website. And then we You should be able to also, if you join our caucus, then you'll get our newsletter. And then within that newsletter, you'll see what's coming up. And that does include like, hey, announcement, we have the anti-racism learning community uh, meeting coming up, or we have this speaker series event. We have the social hours. So you'll get all of that information from the newsletter if you do join our caucus. And like what Nadia said, we do have those social hours. Our last one was on breathwork and meditation. Because actually, April is Stress Awareness Month, if I'm not mista- mistaken. It's like Mental Health and st- Stress Awareness Month. So we had, I can't remember her name, Dr. Lynn? Um, yep, Dr. Lynn led that social hour. And she helped us with some breath work and meditation strategies, which I think most of the participants kind of felt super relaxed by the end and wanted to just take a nap. So <laughs> that was a really that was a really great social hour.
0: That's lovely.
2: Yes. The initiatives, yeah, that
3: we take are also graduate student panel, which we, you know, do in the fall. So, you know, we invite, you know, of course, all of us, you know, who went to grad school, you know, sharing information as to, you know, what was helpful in applying. We do have some professors from, uh, you know, different universities come in, you know, talk to the students about what they're looking for, you know, in, uh, in prospective students. We do have that in the fall. We also have a mentorship program where we, you know, pair students and mentors with similar similar interests. And, of course, you know, also cultural and linguistic backgrounds as oh, well. Oh,
0: that's phenomenal. Oh, my gosh. So, in Basla, the first course I went to… I haven't unpacked my, my notes. It's, oh, it's over there. My, I, I literally got home yesterday and just dropped the luggage and just came in and um, we got to work on boxing the house. But the very first talk that I went to was by two professors from Arkansas, University of Arkansas Health Science School. I can't remember the second half, but they were talking about the support of BIPOC students and how they created, they presented research on their BIPOC initiative. And so BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color and supporting. And they were talking about the attrition rate of BIPOC graduate students because they felt isolated and alone and, and that there's internal gatekeeping. And And they broke, they analyzed all the potential barriers. And the biggest solution to having students that recognize as BIPOC feeling supported was creating a safe space, giving them support. And so mentorship is profound. And wearing professor hat, my next thought is, okay, how do we do that? Especially at a PWI, a predominantly white institute, how do we create a safe space, especially when your current students are almost 100% Caucasian, right? That's so much to unpack in that thought process, but how? What were y'all's personal, that's a very intimate question, if you're comfortable with answering it, but what were y'all's personal experiences in school like? In grad school?
2: Or... Yes, either. Grad school, undergrad? I mean, I think undergrad, the majority of the individuals within my cohort were Caucasian and then same thing also with grad school and then in grad school I know like within like that first week all the second years were doing the screening like speech and language here, like speech and hearing screening for everyone yeah. and then to see if anyone needed some additional assistance pri like during you know the course of the program but yeah so the majority of my cohort were also of Caucasian background we did have actually I think more Like Asian, I would say. I think there were three other individuals within my cohort from an Asian background. But yeah, majority of it was Caucasian.
3: Same with me too. I went to Missouri State for my undergrad and majority of, you know, my cohort was, you know, Caucasian. of Caucasian descent, I think I had two other international students, classmates, because, you know, being, you know, multilingual, and I wanted to be able to work with culturally diverse population. You know, I wanted to be able to, you know, study more about multiculturalism, bilingualism. And so I decided to move to California.
0: Mm hmm. Was grad school predominantly white or did you have more diversity I in your
3: class? yes, but we did have a number, a few of, you know, Spanish speaking, you know, classmates and, you know, San Diego State also had a, uh, what is that? Bilingual certificate program.
2: So, what?
3: you know, cool. that was one, yeah, that was one of the things that interested me. Although I didn't pursue it because I spoke Japanese and I didn't speak Spanish, but in the university clinic, I did have some Japanese speaking clients, which was really, really neat. You know, so I wanted to be able to, yeah, you know, utilize my, you know, first language in, in clinical intervention. And I'm, you know, fortunate and glad that I got to do it.
0: Yes. Oh, I will never forget the very first time I got called out to help a family and they were from, they spoke Tagalog. Am I saying that right? Tagalog? And South Carolina, the early intervention system, they have interpreters, but the interpreters are only Spanish-speaking interpreters, and they'll pay for it. And that was – I had never heard of the language. I'd never been exposed to it. And that was – the family was – They were so patient with me and gave me so much grace while I was learning about like how to enter their home and how to be respectful, right? And I look back on the first day when I walked in, I I came popping in, left my shoes on, didn't wash my hands right away and like how I didn't know I was being disrespectful by just being my enthusiastic little cheerful self, right? But they taught me about, you know, we put our shoes here, we wash our hands here. This is, you know, this was, it was... and. Plus, their grandma, who only spoke Tagalog, every time I came in, she would just smile and nod. And she gave me the look that my grandma gave me when I was like a hot mess express. And it was adorable, but we never could find an interpreter to help. So we just had to kind of piecemeal together feeding strategies through that. So what strategies do y'all have or does API offer for when we go to do formal evaluations or... Because, we okay, again, folks, if you're listening, a single standardized instrument is not a comprehensive eval. So let's put that out there. But what tools do you all recommend that we consider and use as a predominantly Caucasian profession? You see what I'm saying?
3: I think it also depends on who you are evaluating. You know, so like I know that here, you know, we do have Spanish, English, you know, bilingual assessments. But obviously we don't have that, you know, for you know, all the Asian languages, right? So I've done a number of bilingual assessments for Japanese-speaking bilingual clients. And because we don't have that standardized bilingual assessment tools, you know, I had to assess the, you know, the clients in each of the language informally, you know, criterion-based, you know, assessment, you know, kind of establish the skill sets. And, you know, that's what I have been doing. And actually, have anything you want to add?
2: I haven't had the opportunity to assess bilingual uh, the bilingual population, especially like there's not as many, I think, Indonesian population here, at least in, you know, where where I'm at in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. Plus like the majority of the individuals that I work with are children on the autism spectrum. So I'm working more on getting them, you know, some a mode to communicate their wants and needs effectively. But yeah, I would say like Probably more of those assessments that are more informal, just because right now with the those standardized tests, they're not standardized to the population from these different backgrounds.
3: Correct. Yeah. And then I think one thing also to remember is, you know, one, I mean, I can only speak for Japanese, but, you know, one Japanese English bilingual person is different from another bilingual, you know, Japanese-English person. You know, their exposure to the language is different. You know, their receptive or expressive language skills may be different from, you know, another person. So, it is very, very difficult, you know, to, you know, establish a test that way, but it has to be individualized. And, you know, as a caucus, what we also offer is to network, you know, speech pathologists or, you know, related professionals that speak the language, you know, we often receive emails or inquiries asking, you know, oh, you know, uh, do you have anyone, you know, who speaks Mandarin, who's licensed in Illinois, for example. You know, and even in our clinic, we do get yeah phone calls, you know, from, you know, for example, like in California, we have regional centers. So we may receive, you know, calls from regional centers requesting for Japanese speaking speech pathologists or home health agencies or, you know, some people even have, you know, looked me up on ASHA website and called me, you know, we do have resources like that. And I think, you know, we should utilize it.
0: Yes, that's amazing. So before my, when my children were going to the Mandarin immersion school, we I actually had a little one that was on my caseload who was autistic. He was neurodivergent and his family, they were faculty at the university or getting their PhD. I can't remember, but Mandarin was the dominant language that was also spoken in the home. And it was like, I know that the school exists. We may want to consider, you know, that a way it would support both languages because I still get the, when I go into homes where there's two languages spoken in the home and I'm doing therapy in English, but predominantly I'm doing caregiver coaching. Every once in a while, I have to do hands-on for strategies, but just safe feeding strategies, or I'll do visual modeling, aided language simulation on like a speech generating device, but I'm just modeling for the caregivers so that they can replicate it because long gone are the days of direct service delivery in the birth to three population and the bag of toys that we don't bring into the house anymore. Folks, you don't need to bring the bag of toys into the house, but I'm still like coaching, right? But having that question, do we need to speak in English? Should we only do therapy in English? And having to coach the caregivers through, speak in your first language. Speak in the language that you want to speak in in the home. I feel, do you have personal recommendations on how to support our bilingual families if they speak different languages? Or how do I empower them so that they feel that not one culture is less or greater than. Do you see what I'm saying?
3: I would always encourage the you know caregivers or family members to speak in their best language because you want to you know model the best language, right? Provide the best model for the you know the children. So that's what I always say. But you know we often hear even here in California, as diverse as we are. You know, we hear from the parents saying, oh, the pediatrician says that we have to speak in English or the class teacher says, you know, classroom teacher says that we have to speak in English because we are in America. And I tell them, but they're not communication specialists, but we are. We can't expect them to speak to their children in English if they don't know English or if they don't feel comfortable, you know, speaking it.
2: Yeah, because the main thing is, you know, providing that modeling and the correct way to model things. That just kind of like brings me back to my childhood, because when I came here, I was in fourth grade and I took English lessons, but they were like, Susie is riding a bicycle, right? So I knew like how to say Susie is riding a bicycle, but I didn't know how to tell my teacher that I need to go to the bathroom, which was really problematic, right? I need to know what to use. I don't care that Susie is riding a bicycle. I'm at school. So I remember that summer before we started school, my mom was like, okay, I'm only going to speak to you and your sister in English and that's it. We're not speaking Indonesian. So that summer I just like spoke in broken English, took ESL for one year, and then I didn't have to take ESL anymore. But then I essentially kind of like lost my Indonesian until we went back to Indonesia. And then I then spoke broken Indonesian, and then, you know, eventually like I regained both languages and I'm fluent in both again, thankfully. But yeah, so it's just more speaking in that, like what Nadia said in the your best language so that you can provide the best model. But looking at the families too, there's also different cultural components, especially when, you know, we're working with parents from diverse backgrounds. So we have to make sure that we have some of that cultural competency and just cultural awareness, because, like, for example, some parents might nod during a conversation, but it doesn't always mean that they're agreeing with you, right? They might just nod, but it doesn't mean they're it's agreeing. It's out of with
3: respect. You. We do that in Japanese culture. You know, we nod. It's out of respect, but you know, we don't. So don't interpret
2: anything. it as as comprehension or agreement. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And sometimes too, some professional figures are considered like as authoritative figures. So the families might not feel comfortable asking questions or communicating with them in general, but it's important to let them know that they're also a part of the treatment process for their child. Because as we know, right, we go into the home or they come to the clinic or they come to school and it's only a tiny part of that child's day. The rest of it is at home with their parents. Right. So the parents are also as much a part of that treatment process for their child. And we're not just like the one that's going to come in and wave a magic wand and just fix them. Right. Like some things also have to happen at home to build that carryover and that generalization for, for our clients and students.
3: And as I said, you know, many families do, you know, regard to professionals, even speech pathologists as authoritative figures. So they may not feel comfortable asking questions or even, you know, with the provision of services, you know, minority families may not get, you know, as much services as, you know, other counterparts because one, they may not know how to request. They may not know that they could request. You know, many of the Asian cultures are such that when things are given, we say thank you and we accept it and we don't ask for more. You know, and sometimes, you know, they will come to us and say, you know, Miss Nadia, my son was given this much of speech therapy at school, but his classmate is getting twice the amount. Why is that? You know, sometimes some families feel comfortable asking questions to us, because we understand their culture and, you know, language and they feel comfortable communicating with us. But they may not do that in other settings. So I think advocating for families, you know, is, you know, it's also a you know, crucial thing. And like Archie said, you know, parents and caregivers are part of the team. You know, this is a team process, right?
0: I feel like as a general rule of thumb, as therapists... Regardless of our backgrounds, we may not always take time during those initial meetings to empower the the caregivers and their rights as thoroughly as we should. To say, hey, you're allowed due process if you're in an IEP. Dog agrees with that. She's very excited about that if you heard that in the background. Or I always make a habit of saying, look, I am your current speech pathologist and I know what I know. But as we walk on this journey together, I may not be the therapist that you need in the future. We may just need to work on this one strategy, and then you may need more language therapy or phonology therapy, and that's a different therapist. Or you may not like my coaching style. And if you don't, that's okay. I will find somebody who we can refer to that will support you, and it might not be me. But that's – I remember when I modeled up for a student one time, and she was like, why did you tell them that they may not like you? And I'm like, well, because they may not like me. I mean, that's, let's be honest. I am a bull in a china shop. Like, this is just how I roll. But we have to be aware of that and empower them to say,
2: you can change. Different is good. And then I would say to, like, take the time to explain things to the parents. If you do have any, like, handouts available, leave that with them so that maybe, you know, they can have additional time after you leave to read through some of that material, Maybe then, you know, making sure to let them know that if you have any questions, make sure that you ask us because we are also a resource to you, you know, just to make sure too that you're leaving something so that they're not like, wait, what did they just say? Again, just so that sometimes they they just need a little bit so parents can have a little bit more time to just kind of comprehend what's happening.
3: Right. And I would also suggest that allocating time for questions during a meeting because when they're listening and when they're nodding out of respect, they may not be thinking about, You know, what kind of questions we can ask, right? But, uh, you know, allowing, you know, extra time, you know, for them to kind of process the information we are presenting, especially, you know, if it has to do with new diagnosis or something, you know, they're unfamiliar with, you know, they may need more time. And then also considering, you know, the linguistic differences too. The social piece, that's
0: something that I have had to advocate on behalf of my students, Before, I've worked with some students from India, and one of them, we had to support in her practicum and eventually find her a safer place because in her culture, she was taught not to make eye contact. She was working with adults that were inpatient post-CVA and doing dysphagia Mm -hmm. evals, and she was explaining, you know, she came to me and she was like, my supervisor keeps fussing at me to raise my voice, to speak louder to them, to like sternal rub and all sorts of stuff to kind of wake the patient up to participate. And she's like, this is not how I was taught to treat the elders in my community. And that's part of who I am. And I am uncomfortable. And truth be told, that hadn't... I mean, I've worked once upon a time with adults. That was not in my realm of knowledge. And I was like, oh my, no, if then we're going to help support and fix this. But it took crucial conversations, learning... I ended up calling a couple of my colleagues to learn more about that I knew that identified with this culture and this background to grow as a clinician and then research and then relay this over to her clinical soup to say, hey, this can't be reflected in her grade. We need to coach and modify and adjust. And so that impacts how we as clinical supervisors coach and empower the students in that hat and Nani, I know you've done clinical supervision, so this is... Archie, have you
2: been a clinical supervisor as well? Yeah, I currently have a student right now.
0: Yes. So, I mean, how in that hat, in that light, if there's individuals that are serving as clinical supervisors, what recommendations do you have for them with working with students that potentially have different cultural backgrounds? And
2: I don't want anybody to ever have to go through what she went through. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know with my students, I usually like in the beginning, I'll ask them like, how would you like to receive feedback? I think like that's one of the first things, right? How do you like to receive feedback? I make sure that they're like observing me and then provide them with time, give them time to also ask me questions based on what they saw and how I provided the session. And then I'm kind of like a, I don't know, stage five clinger. So I'm usually like right there with my students when they're doing the session, just so that I can support them in case they need anything, especially with the population that we work with, just to make sure that they're safe and that they're comfortable working with the students because a lot of my students do engage in, you know, various types of modest behaviors, which is a of communication, just not the appropriate way to communicate. But you know, just to make sure that there are students who so they're there to learn, right? So I want them to learn and not be traumatized by their clinical experience. So I just make sure that I'm there, that they have time to ask me questions at any time, and that if, you know, I let them know of what my expectations are, and what they can expect from me too, so that everything is kind of like clear from the beginning.
3: I do that too. Yes, that's so important. And I think we, you know, we can also be mindful of the discourse style. So like certain Asian languages, like Japanese, Korean, Chinese, we tend to be you know, like if you're drawing a diagram, it's gonna be like a, you know going in a circle. So in in American English, it's very direct, right? So like for example, if somebody's canceling a session, I'll oh, be canceling the session. They'll tell you that. But, but in Japanese culture, in Japanese language, for example, they will tell you, oh, my son woke up this morning and he was coughing a little bit. And when I decided to take a temperature, he had a little fever. And then I thought about it and maybe he should go to the doctor. I'm going, going to take him to the doctor. And therefore, you know, coming to session today. So it's kind of like circumlocuting, you know, and then expecting the listener to like, you know, infer, you know, what they want, want to tell you. But that's the language style, right? Discourse, and I think I'm mindful of you know how students, you know, or the graduate interns or clinical fellows, you know, they communicate, you know, in different discourse styles too. And I do communicate sometimes, going round and round. This is me. <laughs> I know my first language is impacting my English,
2: so <laughs> I'm always mindful of that. <laughs> yeah, or as with me, I tell my students that I'm pretty much a direct communicator. So if I tell you something, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I'm just telling you. And if, you know, just don't take it personally. I just want to make sure that you're safe and that the student is safe. So I think it's, again, letting everyone kind of be aware of both individuals and communication styles. And so hopefully one goes home sad. Yeah. And then also... <laughs>
0: Grad students are typically sad. Let's be honest. They're always stressed. They're always completely
3: overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, it's for them to be able to like advocate for themselves. You know, yes. that's, you know, that's something we did this semester. You know, two ladies just grad I think they're just graduating this week. And, you know, for them to be able to advocate, you know, for their needs. I know they're taking, co- you know, classes in addition to practicum and, you know, preparing for praxis or comps. So I know it's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on. So yeah,
0: I talk through touch. I I mean, y'all have seen me waving my hands around this entire time that we're talking, but like, this is how I've seen my dad talk. This is how I saw my grandma talk. And touch is my love language. Have y'all ever read the five love languages? Mm -hmm. Yes, I love this book. And so acts of service and touch are how I give love. Right? But in all cultures, not everybody wants to be touched. And some people just don't want to be touched. Erin, that co-hosts with me, who is my student once upon a time, if I'm hugging you, I am hugging you. Like we are gonna like touch souls for a second, right? But like, bless her heart, every time I go to hug Erin, Aaron, Erin's like, she like taps me and that's her hug, and she's like my person. But it's really funny, she'll like Moderately hug the boys a little bit more because she's basically their aunt, right? But that's, I've had to learn, you know, in different cultures, maybe don't tap everyone on their head or don't touch everybody. But like a little part of me dies not being able to do that. But I have to like behave myself and learn that that could be disrespectful. But that's just me trying to be me as I like flap away over here I am
3: I'm a hugger too you know so that Sri Lankan in me tells me oh I need to hug somebody to express how I feel but you know my mother who's Japanese she won't hug me that if I pick her up at the airport she'll tap me on my shoulder and I'm (laughs) like mommy I need a hug (laughs) You know, so there's like a cultural, you know, thing, you know, even within my family, right? Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes. Oh, I don't know. If you show up at our house, the first thing my stepmama does when we get to meet everybody, my family was also bootleggers. There's fun stories back in the day. But when they show up, there's going to be food and there will be a stiff drink. So it's kind of pick your poison. And that's how we say hello. And I laugh, but the first time Christian met my family... My stepmom had the spread, all the food was out and she created buttery nipple shots, which is not necessarily the greatest warming, like house welcoming gift to meet a family, but like, this is who we are. So that he was like, is that normal? And I'm like, in our neck of the woods? Yes, sir. (laughs) That's a great way to meet your future in-laws. Ah. Okay, we went 14 different ways, but this was so much fun. So, what have we not covered that y'all want to cover
2: or get out into the world? Let's see. Well, like what Nadia said, people were able to find her through the ASHA website. So, that's through the ASHA profile. Again, not everyone might list what languages they're speaking, but if you're looking for, um, you know, if you want to get more information on how you can find SLPs or audiologists who have an understanding of a certain language or a certain background, you can try to utilize the ASHA ProFind. The API Caucus website, like what we mentioned, has a lot of different resources. We're continuing to try to grow this area and add more resources and languages. Right Currently, now, we
3: have Cantonese, Korean, Simplified Chinese, Traditional Chinese, Taiwanese, Vietnamese, Hmong. We have those resources listed on our website, and other languages are in process.
2: Yep. So, progress, absolutely, yes. yep, yeah, they're in progress. So you can definitely check some of those resources out. Follow us again on social media. Become a member again, so you can. We don't
3: have to at, be, you know, of an Asian HM background, background to be a yes. member. You know, exactly. be our ally and you know become a member and network, right?
0: I learned that in Basla, and that was awesome. So I joined in Basla when I was there. But now that I know, and that often is a not speaking for all Caucasian women, but for myself, am I allowed to join? Is that okay? I don't want to overset my of grounds, course. but
2: tithe of my time. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Come join us. Come learn with us. And then, yeah, that's what I would say. And, and then think- one of the things do. Too- okay. go ahead, Nadia.
3: I think one of the things we forgot to mention earlier was that, you know, we were able to award us award, I think, three scholarships last year. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. So yeah. that's awesome. something we
3: are doing that as well.
2: Yeah.
3: You know, and so we are. Yeah. Yeah, we students. were able
2: to give sorry those scholarships from all of the nice donations that we were able to receive. So if you want to support our caucus, you can donate and then that will pay. Currently for the membership you. is free. Yes, exactly. Yep. What? Membership is free. Yes, membership is free. Anyone can join. And then so we
3: nonprofit. Yeah. So if you donate to us, then it's you know tax, you deductible. tax- uh- <laughs> deductible.
0: So yes, so yep. if we have the love money, if we've got the love money, donate for a scholarship. And do the scholarships go to undergraduate students, grad students, PhD students? Who
2: does it support? Any student. So usually what is it? I think it's at the end of the year, you know, hopefully we'll be able to provide those scholarships again this year. But the entries, I don't remember when, but people can submit their entries with an essay. And then we have like different like a subcommittee then to read all the essays and determine the, the winners of the scholarship. But yeah, they're for undergrad and also grad students. Awesome
0: oh, I love a good scholarship. I have a dream of creating a page on my website that just links to all these different scholarships so that students could just like, because it's really hard to find. It's not like readily available. This was absolutely a joy to have y'all on. And like the time flew by. So thank you. Thank you both for Your service to your caucus, to your service to our profession, but also being women leaders because I understand intimately how much it takes, bless you dog, to be a mother and a career woman as like, I have crazy windy hair because we were planting this morning in the garden before we recorded and I kind of smell like the dirt and I need to go take care of that. But from one woman's mommy's heart to y'all's, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, y'all
0: go check out their website, become a member, and thank you for joining us for May because there is so much goodness to celebrate this month. So as always, check us out on First Bite Podcast, on Instagram, on Facebook. This mommy is finally coming up for air from the chaos that has been purchasing this house. We found out all the things. Fun fact, the lady that owned this house left behind three Flemish lops and the first week of living in this house we had to find a bunny rabbit rescue because the bunnies were bigger than my dog and oh yeah that was the tip of the iceberg also the propane went all the things so if you've messaged the last couple of weeks and i've been in a hole please know i was in a fantastic hole and now we're getting ready to purchase all new toilets because the miniature peach toilet is just not going to work. So give me grace, but I will get back to the messages. So everybody have a lovely time, ladies. Thank you for joining. And this is great. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep, Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures All right, so I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from SpeechTherapyPD.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah. I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out.
1: All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.